Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we consider one ingredient in many contexts. Today, we're talking about onions. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Terry Robel, and it's time to Check the Pantry. Onions and truffles cost the same amount of money, said the American artist Jasper Johns. Obviously, you would buy the onion. You need onions. You don't need truffles. The common globe onion is a member of the genus Allium, which includes shallots, leeks, garlic, scallions, and chives. And they are more closely related to grasses than to other common vegetables. You will note immediately that practically every non-dessert recipe from every cuisine in the world uses at least one of these, and often more than one. Chinese recipes often start with garlic or green onions along with ginger used to flavor screaming hot oil in a wok. Many Indian recipes start by brown frying a large amount of onions, a combination of sautéing and caramelizing that balances sweetness against intense savoriness. The Cajun Holy Trinity, a hybrid of the French mirepoix and the Spanish sofrito, begins by cooking onions until they're translucent and then adding celery and bell pepper. The onion was worshipped in ancient Egypt and used as currency in the Middle Ages. Grandpa Abe Simpson, as a young man, wore an onion on his belt, which was the style at the time. The famous propensity of onions to make you cry comes from a particular enzyme that's activated whenever an onion's cell structure is disrupted. When several chemical compounds that are separate in the ordinary life of the onion are mixed through cutting or crushing, this enzyme goes to work on them and converts them into a volatile aromatic substance that, when it reaches your eyes, dissolves in your tears into sulfuric acid. There are long lists of folk remedies for reducing the burn and the crying when cutting onions, but the only ones that I've found to work are wearing ski goggles, blowing the fumes away with a strong fan, or the path I usually take, sucking it up. After an onion or two, you don't notice it anymore. I heard an interview once with some women who worked in an onion processing plant, and they said that every morning for the first 10 or 15 minutes, their eyes burned and they cried, and then it stopped and the rest of the day was normal. But they had to take their meals and breaks in a room next to the processing floor because if they left for too long, they had to suffer again. A sharp knife is sometimes said to reduce tears as well, Proponents of this idea say a fine edge reduces the chemical mixing that produces weeping, while a dull edge increases it. Whatever the reality of that notion, an onion, with its dry and leathery outer layers, is an excellent indicator as to when you should take your knife to the whetstone, especially since so many dishes start with dicing an onion. Onion dicing technique is an excellent way for a practice cook to judge your kitchen ability because there is inarguably only one correct way to dice an onion. Slice off the stem end, bisect the onion through the root, peel back the outer layers until all the leather is gone. Slice longitudinally almost, but not all the way down to the root. 
And now the key step, the path to perfect dice. Hold your knife with the blade parallel to your work surface and make two to three horizontal cuts, again almost, but not all the way, down to the root, depending on the size of the onion and the size of the desired dice. Then and only then can you form your fingers into a claw and finish the onion by slicing across the face, perpendicular to the two cuts you have just made. Your reward is evenly sized, evenly shaped pieces of onion, with none of the random triangular corner chunks so common to incorrectly diced onion. Onions small and well-formed enough that even self-proclaimed onion haters, and yes, these people exist, even self-proclaimed onion haters will never object. That's right. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am here with Terry Roble, and we are back for season two of Check the Pantry, and we are here to talk about onions, which are maybe my favorite vegetable. I use them all the time. My dad actually used to joke that my mom put onions in everything, including pecan pie. <laughs> oh, I love onions. They are magnificent. What's your favorite kind of onion? Because there's so many varieties. There's Ooh. sweet onions, there's yellow onions, there's red onions, there's white onions, green onions... You know, it just depends on what you're doing with it. I love Walla Walla onions. Do you? What do you like those for? They're just such a mild, sweet onion. You know, put them in salads and and um, you can put them on top of tacos. And, and especially if there's somebody in your life that's kind of not real keen on onions, they're a little milder, don't you think? What do yeah, you well, like? the, you know, the, I actually, I only, I pretty much only use sweet onions like um, Walla Walla's or, or uh-huh. Vidalia's, which Me are too. probably the most famous. I only use those raw. I don't really yeah. like them cooked because I think they get too sweet. They do. I know some people use them for caramelized onions because of that, but, but I always feel like it's no. like, ah, it's almost like candy, no. you know, no. but it, you know, my mom used to, we used to, every year we used to get a box of Vidalia's shipped from Vidalia because that's yeah. the only place you can get them. Vidalia, you know? Georgia, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Something about the soil. Yeah. They've got some special soil there that makes them uh, yeah. the And did the Shriners, of, of that was their fundraiser and they sold them. The Shriners sold them? Up here, you could buy them. That was a fundraiser for them. Really? The Shriners? Yeah. yeah. In Alaska? Yeah. Huh. I'd, I had no idea the Shriners that were associated with I'm older than you. I know That's these true. old things. <laughs> but yeah, my mom used to just serve those on the table. And they were, those were the only ones that she would she would do that with. Uh-huh. You know, you could just, I mean, they used to say you could just eat them like an apple, you know, peel, you out, can. peel off the skin and go for it. But I, I almost always use yellows to cook. Yes. Spanish onions. Yeah. Yeah. Reds I use raw too. I like reds for pickling though, because yes. they, they're so pretty, you know? They are. And if you can get a, boy, sometimes I get some really strong ones up here. You know, sometimes we get really strong green ones too. I've actually, <laughs> Alaska is yeah. the only place I've ever cried while cutting a green onion. <laughs> and I don't know why. I don't know if they're, if, I don't know if it's because they're older. I think that, that those, those compounds intensify a little bit as they get older. And so much of our produce up here is old that. Yeah. And, and uh, green onions, is a little known, you know, everybody likes to use them as garnish, right? Because they're so, they're pretty and they have a nice uh, oniony mm-hmm. little, you know, sort of a, a very bright, freshening crunch to them. But if you slice them really thin, do you do this where you slice them super, super thin on the bias, barely thicker than a hair, like as thin as you can possibly go. And then you drop them in some ice water and they curl up. 
Oh, yeah, And they yeah. make a little nest of green onions yes. that you can yes. plop right on top of things. Yeah, I haven't done that in a long time. It's kind of a fancy thing. You have to be cooking for somebody you really like. Or impress. <laughs> <laughs> Want to impress. They are basically like, they, they go at the bottom of everything, you know. They like, do. Mirepoix, what people argue, I've gotten into so many arguments about the correct ratio for Mirepoix. I don't know, you know, I... I I don't know. I think I'd almost double onion and one each on carrot and celery. But That's almost where I am, except usually I, I go uh, one and a half. So okay. I go two onion, two onion, one celery, one and a half carrot, or, or in the case of the Trinity, bell pepper. Mm-hmm. And you got to And another thing, I notice a lot of recipes, they always, they'll, they'll say, you know, dump them all in the pot together. No. You got to start with the onions. Yeah. You got to let the onions get like soft. Yeah. Sweat. Yeah, in butter. A little butter. <laughs> you know, we all go, butter, we love our butter. <laughs> I mean, you can use oil too. You can use olive oil. Yeah. And it's, and it's fine. A little, it, I always use a little olive oil and a little butter. That, that's just something I've been doing. I don't know. I just like a lot of things cooked that way. It's a good mix. But you know what? I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's this theory going around, and it's a wrong theory. There are people that think that magically if you use olive oil and butter together – that you can now deep fry with unclarified butter because they have this idea that somehow the, the smoke point of the whole mixture is like magically oh, raised. Right, because of the oil. Yeah, that somehow adding the oil, but it, it doesn't matter at all because the thing that's burning is not the oil, it's the butter solids and those, right. like there's nothing that changes. So don't ever mix the, you can mix the two for flavor. That's great. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, exactly. But don't like saute think you're going to be able to like cook you know cook that oil to like 400 degrees now because there's or cook the butter to 400 degrees because there's a little oil in it because you can't and you're going to be really sad because it's going to burn so we're talking about onions and i had to come up with a dish and to me it was obvious because probably the most famous western dish celebrating the onion is french onion soup love it and so according to the legend it was created as a hangover remedy in parisian bistros (laughs) but it's probably more likely to come from the limited range of ingredients that was available to poor women, you know, trying to feed their families with a simple soup. Of course. That they threw a chunk of yesterday's bread into. Mm. A lot of fine dining dishes, that's where they come from, you know. And the bistro touch is probably the cheese that's run under the broiler mm. because not too many poor French housewives had broilers. <laughs> so the soup starts really simply with a bunch of onions cooked until they turn sweet and soft. So I went into the kitchen to talk about the process. Two onions and a knife, all you need. So let's talk about cutting onions. For caramelized onions, there's only one way to do it right. Cut off the uh, stem end, cut off the root end. Bisect the onion down the prime meridian peel off the outer layer. There's a leathery layer. You got to make sure you get all of that. Sometimes the leathery layer goes down two layers. Sometimes if, if they're really old onions, it can be as much as three. And it does happen, especially in Alaska, because our produce is terrible. And I'm just going to make cuts, thin cuts. The important thing when you're doing caramelized onions is you don't want to cut across the segments of the onion, because then You can't chew them right and they pull and they do weird things. So you want to cut down longitudinally down the onion 
And remember, you want to start with your knife blade almost parallel to the counter. And then as you go around the onion, you roll your knife blade. Otherwise, you get weird shaped onions. And the goal is to have them all be roughly the same width. You know, if you cut straight down the whole way, the, the bits on the end are like kind of half moons. And you don't want them to be half moons. You want them to be strips. So keep rotating your knife. When you get halfway down, rotate the whole onion. A lot of knife efficiency is you want to move the knife as little as possible. You want to move the food around the knife. Preheating my pan and I'm getting a nice glug of butter. I'll give it a little more because butter tastes good. And something like this, especially, you get like almost like a butterscotchy kind of note. You can hear it just starting to simmer. Now you don't want to do it super low because then it just takes forever. But you don't want to do it high because you don't want your onions to sear before the actual juices start to come out and start to caramelize. The reason that caramelized onions work is because onions contain a ton of sugar. And so what you're doing is you're cooking the water out of the onions containing all this sugar. And then as the water cooks out, the sugar begins to caramelize. You're basically making caramel. And we've made caramel before on the show. It's the same process. It's just you're doing it with onion, with the sugars that are naturally occurring in an onion. And there's other stuff too. So there's complex flavors. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on. And I'm adding my onions. I don't mind starting my onions a little hot just to kind of get things moving. So I've got my onions. I just piled them all in there. There's more than a layer of onions, which is okay. This will cook down to like probably a quarter of its volume. And the next thing you always do is you always give it a nice salting. And what that does, in addition to being flavorful, the salt draws out the onion juices and it makes the whole process happen a lot faster. Now this whole process, start to finish, is gonna take a minimum of 20 minutes. That's for a pretty light caramelized onion. For French onion soup, I'm gonna push it to at least 30 minutes. If you wanna do something like onion jam where you want some really, really sweet, super intense, super dark onions, you can let them go for 45 minutes or so. No problem. So these onions are plain old yellow onions. If you do use red onions and caramelized onions, you can do, you can use them. But what's going to happen is that they will turn bluish gray. And there's a pigment called, uh, I believe it's called anthocyanin, that is responsible for the red pigment in a lot of different foods. And in an alkaline environment, it turns gray. So if you use red onions and you want them to be red, what you have to do is at, at the end, you squirt them with vinegar and it turns them back to brown because they're not they're not really going to be red anymore. There's a lot of ways of cheating and none of them are good. Some people, God, it's so bad. Some people put sugar in them thinking that's going to help them caramelize faster or they think, oh, it's caramelized onions. You have to add sugar. No, you don't. Adding sugar doesn't do anything except make them just taste cloying. Some people add brown sugar. I don't know why because it's brown and you're looking for brown onions. I don't really get it. It just takes time. And the end product is so much better. The goal of caramelized onions at the end is to have this sort of rich, savory onionness married to sweetness. And for that, you really don't need anything else. Especially if you go a little hot and kind of in the midpoint, you'll start to get some sticking, some uh, fawn, as they call it, sticking to the bottom of the pan. And it can be useful to add either a little bit of water or sometimes I'll use a little bit of chicken stock. And for something like French onion soup, like we're doing, I mean, that makes sense. It's, you're just adding a little more of a flavor you're gonna be adding anyway. And the reason that you do that is because if you, if you let that fawn stick there, you know, it can burn. 
But the best thing to do if you start developing a lot of that is to just turn it down a little bit. They're going pretty well. They're really, they're translucent now. And they're starting, a few of them are starting to get a little bit of brown. And so that's what, I don't want that. Now the other thing I will add sometimes, especially if, they, if the onions have a dedicated purpose, towards the end when I'm almost done and I'm finishing out, I might add a little bit of wine or maybe a little sherry, a little vermouth, something like that. But again, that's already, that's gonna also be in my final dish. So really, the only thing that is in the pan right now and the only thing that's gonna stay in the pan pretty much the whole time is onions, salt, butter, and that's it. You can use oil, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with olive oil or whatever. It's just, it's a slightly different flavor and we're making French onion soup, so let's go butter. I mean, you can make it with lard. Caramelizing onions is pretty much the greatest smell in the kitchen. We're moving along very nicely. They're kind of a light sandy color. Very translucent. We're starting to get, we got a little bit of brown on the bottom. I'm just gonna let it ride. Oh man, my kitchen smells ridiculous right now. So now I'm starting to get some darker stuff mixed in. I'm down to uh, just about a half of the, the volume that I started with. And now the fond on the bottom is starting to brown a little bit more. So I'm gonna splash a little water in, about a quarter cup, just enough to be able to scrape up this beautiful brown stuff on the bottom. This is not something you have to sit there and tend. You know, this is this, this is something you, you put on at the beginning and then you do all the other stuff you need to do and then you come back to it. And Carmos keep really, really well. You can keep them easily for five days to a week in your refrigerator. Honestly, you could probably keep them for a lot longer than that, but that's like kind of the safe side. They're so sugary and caramelized by the time you get done with them that and there's so little water, nothing's gonna live in these things. We'll talk about water activity at some point in the future, but not today. So we are now, I'm gonna say these are kind of like the color of like a lightly stained maple right now, which really, this is, this is the starting color for French onion soup. And that'll help it get the, the beautiful brown color of the soup and it'll help get that characteristic like sweetness that sits underneath all the savory beef stock and the, and the crunch of the bread and the funk of the cheese. Now I like to go just a little bit darker than this. I'm kind of shooting for sort of like a real light maple syrup look. So definitely moving into the tan, but I'm not, I don't want these to be like dark mahogany kind of where they, where it starts to get into like reddish colors. Now these guys are like, this is probably, they're at a third of the volume or so. I could keep going. I absolutely could keep going. And for certain purposes, I would. So I'm going to stop it right here. It's like the cut, they're like the color of peanut butter right now. And that for French onion soup is perfect. Now you've got caramelized onions. We'll talk about making the soup later. We've got more to come on the soup. But caramelized onions are like one of my favorite things to just have in the fridge because there's so much you can do with them. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of the, one of the other great uh, uses for them is um, in Alsatian onion tarts. It's oh. kind of like a quiche, except there's only enough egg custard to basically make the onions sliceable. Because you take, you know, a huge panful of caramelized onions and you dump them in a pastry shell that you've already cooked 
and then you pour a really basic custard mixture, four egg yolks to a pint of cream, and bake that with a little oh, salt and pepper. Rich. Oh, it's insane. That and a green salad and a glass That's of a red uh, wine. I would. I would do personally. I would do a glass of white wine ah. with that. But uh, red wine would work. I mean, any wine works. You know, we all make a big deal about wine pairings, and they do matter. They do. But really, drink what you want. You know. Yeah. I do. But what I'm really excited about, my favorite onion dish in the world. Is? Onion rings. (gasps) Oh, love them. How do you like to make your onion rings? Well, you know, I like like variety, so I make them different at times. Sometimes I use a tempura batter. Sometimes I use a beer batter. Um, Lots of times I'll just run them through a little flour or cornstarch and then a little egg uh, milk and then into panko. Ooh. And um, the, I like the crunch. Do you salt them beforehand or you just cut your onion up? You and know, go? I just cut them beforehand, but I'm always open to suggestions. You know, one thing I saw, because sometimes when I make, I almost always make um, non-battered onion rings, mostly because I'm lazy and I can't be bothered to make the batter. <laughs> but, when I, but when I do make the batter, I always have some issues, you know, because you ever have that thing where you bite into an onion ring and you can't get a clean bite? Yeah, I hate and that. It, and it, and the, the whole onion comes out I and know. then you just eat this sort of onion and, there's some and it's usually in front of some somebody out to dinner or something. Yeah, right? and it and mm-hmm. it's and it's no good. Well, I actually there's a um if you look at the inside of every layer of the onions, there's like a paper thin min- membrane, you know. Uh-huh. And that is actually the problem. Um mm-hmm. because it's hard for your teeth to cut through it. It's so thin, there's nothing for them to grab onto, and I actually I've I have learned through other sources and I have tried it and it works. If you freeze your onions beforehand for like an hour, the water in the cells ruptures, and they go limp, and it makes it way easier to peel that membrane off. You can get in there and peel it. A, you don't have to worry about the membrane. And two, the onions are, are soft, so they don't, they're never like kind of, you know, sometimes too with the, with the thick onions like that, they're kind of raw tasting mm-hmm. if you don't fry them too long or if you cut them too thick. And that kind of goes away if you freeze them first. So if you, fr- you freeze the onion rings that after you cut or the whole onion? You, you slice, the whole, uh, slice the onion first. Oh, okay. And then you can just throw them in a, on a sheet pan or whatever, stick them in the freezer. It doesn't take long, you know, just an hour or whatever is usually plenty good. You, you do know what is going to be cooked in the, the house tonight, don't on, you? Onion rings? Oh, yeah. We're going to have to try that. You're going to try the freezing thing? Absolutely. I promise you it works. I'm calling you. But see, I get, I, <laughs> like I said, I don't, I, don't make them, I don't make that style very often because my favorite style of onion ring, and it's one of those things, it's totally personal. There's a reason that I love the really thinly cut, and what I usually do is soak it in a buttermilk brine and dredge it in a little flour or a flour cornstarch mixture and a little salt. Yum. How long do you soak it? Like 20 minutes? Uh, honestly, sometimes I leave them in there for a day. Ugh. But you don't have to soak them for that long. Maybe Such a little gourmet. A half hour. Well, that, no, that's not gourmet. That's just lazy. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe I'll make onion <laughs> well, rings. Well, you had me snowed for a minute, hey, you know? <laughs> well, you know, there, a, lot of, a, lot of being a, a lot of being a good cook is knowing how to uh, pull the wool over people's right? eyes. Right. But, uh, but there's this restaurant, it's called Chester Cypress Inn, or it was, because unfortunately it closed down last year. It's, in, it's been open since like 1932 or something. Oh, wow. And it's in the swamps, literally in the swamps in South Louisiana, right outside of Morgan City. I mean, if you don't know where it is, if you don't know it's there, you're not going to find it. All they, all they ever had until like the 80s, I think, all they served was fried chicken and uh, onion rings and French fries. And that was it. Were their French fries good? Their french fries were terrible. Oh. But the onion rings are amazing. They are by far the greatest. 
I've tried to replicate them. I can't. And unfortunately, the place closed down last year. They are the, 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 the thin style, and they, they come in a huge pile on a paper plate, and the bottom of the plate is just like soaked in grease. grease. And uh-huh. it's amazing. They're, I mean, it's a massive pile, and you just eat them addictively. Like, I could, I could only eat the onion rings, which, interestingly enough, was the choice of one Bob Dylan when he went there. And he must have liked the onion rings because he wrote about it in his autobiography. He wrote about going there wow. and eating the onion rings. He said, I'm not, I wasn't that hungry. <laughs> So, so his wife, he went on a motorcycle trip. He was making a record in the in New Orleans in like the the eighties, and he goes on this motorcycle trip, and they accidentally find Chester's, which if you don't know that it's there, that's the only way you're going to find it. And uh, so he went in there, and and I, I read his, I was reading his his autobiography on a uh, on a fishing trip, and I was like, oh, whoa, he went to Chester's. That's really weird. And then he talked about the onion rings, and I was like, man, me and Bob Dylan have something in common. We mm. both we've both sung the praises of. Chester Cypress Inn's onion rings. He was stoned and just had the munchies. <laughs> I'm sure that was part of it. Well, his wife, his wife ate, she ate chicken, but he, he was like, I tried. Oh, I love a good fried chicken. Well, he said, he was like, I tried a little piece of the chicken, but I wasn't very hungry. So I just had the onion rings. Ugh. And he, he said they were great. And then he got on his motorcycle and left. But I've always tried to imagine what it was like to see, I mean, to walk into Chester's and see Bob Dylan eating there with all these like backwoods Cajuns. Well, let's get back to our French onion soup. Oh, that sounds fabulous. Now, there are onion soup recipes that only use water, and there are purists who claim that those are the best of all. Mm. Actually, I like, I like using water for a lot of soups and not stock because you get like a more intense flavor of the base ingredient. But for most people, French onion soup means a flavorful meat stock, which is an important component of cooking for the whole world over. So I boned out a couple of chickens and I went to work. In my ideal world, this is how I make stock. I use a pressure cooker. And so the reason that you would use a pressure cooker over simmering for hours on a stovetop, number one, it's faster. It's a lot faster. Like a standard chicken stock that you would make on the stove, that's going to need to simmer for generally at least a couple of hours. You don't really want to push chicken stock much past four because it's kind of pointless, but one and a half to two hours is kind of the bare minimum. You can finish that same chicken stock in a pressure cooker in half hour. The second advantage is you can use less water. When you're making stock in a pressure cooker, you do not cover the bones. I typically go about a third of the way up the bones. You can go a little higher. And the advantage of that is that you get this intensely concentrated stock and you don't have to reduce it. Usually, if you've done it on the stovetop, the traditional way where you have to cover the bones with water, you're usually going to have to reduce. And that takes more time. So pressure cooker stock is like pre-reduced. Once it comes out, it's already really firm and it's already really super gelatinous. The third reason you would do it in a pressure cooker, it never boils inside the pressure cooker. And so you don't emulsify any fat into your stock, which is always a danger. If you walk away from a stock and you leave it boiling, the boiling can over time churn rendered fat into the stock. And then it will never clarify. It'll never look clear. It'll always be cloudy. There's several styles of like Japanese ramen that take advantage of this where they want to have an emulsified stock that's really rich and milky looking. But for 95% of the stocks that you're going to want to make, you don't want that. Pressure cookers do it better than anything else. And I wish I had a small one, but I don't. So today I'm doing it the old way. There's two components of a stock. One is flavor, obviously, a sort of meaty, savory, rich taste. 
But the other thing, which is equally important, is texture. A really good stock takes the collagen that's present in the bones and the meat and the connective tissue, most importantly, of whatever you're making the stock out of. It extracts that, it dissolves it in water, and during that process, the heat converts it into gelatin. And gelatin, as we know from Jell-O, is what makes a liquid turn into something that's approaching a solid. If you have enough of it, it can actually be a solid. And what that does is when you taste it, then instead of with a really thin sauce, it just kind of hurries over your palate and then it's gone. And so you get a really ephemeral sort of quality. You know, it, it doesn't taste like much. If you've had like watery chicken broth or a lot of vegetable stocks have this problem because vegetables don't naturally contain a thickener like gelatin, you know, there might be a lot of flavor, but because there's no texture to the sauce, it just goes right down your throat and then it's over. Whereas with gelatin, the sauce will kind of coat your tongue and it'll give it a longer lasting sensation. And it's something that's, it's deeply satisfying. So I've got a pot and I've got a pile of chicken parts. Ordinarily when I'm cooking chicken, I buy a whole chicken, I bone it all out if I'm not gonna roast it whole. It's a lot cheaper that way and you get a whole carcass and the skin and all of that goes into the stock. Skin's really important in stock making, chicken skin, because chicken skin contains a ton of collagen. That's like almost all it is. Plus it also, in, in chicken skin also has a lot of chicken flavor to it. So you definitely want to hang on to your skin and use it in your, uh, in your stock. So traditionally, a French onion soup, if you want to get obnoxious about it, it would be beef stock. But to actually get flavor into a beef stock takes beef and beef is expensive. And I'm not going to go buy a chuck roast just to make beef stock. So I got a pot and I've already taken the liberty of pre-roasting my chicken bits, throw them in the oven. This is something, this is a choice. Cooking is a series of choices and it's good to remember that everything that we do when we're in the kitchen, we should be making a choice. Now, sometimes the choices have been made for us. If you're making jambalaya, you don't have to think about what to start the dish with. You just automatically chop up some onions, some celery, some bell pepper, and then you carry on. So that's what a cuisine kind of is to me is a series of choices that have been made. A lot of people have made some choices already, and I'm just glomming on to their choices to make this stock, but I'm still going to make a few choices of my own while I'm doing it. So the first one is I went ahead and I roasted the bones and I roasted the bones specifically because I know that I'm using this for French onion soup. So I want a deep, rich, dark, roasty flavor to go with the onions because there's not much else going on. There are a lot of situations where I don't roast my chicken bones. If I want something lighter, if I want something that doesn't scream like chicken, then I might use unroasted chicken. That's called a white stock. If you roast your bones, it becomes a brown stock. I also threw an onion in here, which is another choice. Most old school stocks actually will go full mirepoix. Onions, celery, carrots. I threw an onion in the roasting pan and I'm gonna use some celery in the actual stock. And part of the reason that celery works, celery has uh, chemical compounds in it that boost other flavors especially meat flavors. They make them seem more savory. Sometimes I do make stocks and I don't even include any aromatics. That's if you want like the absolute jack of all trades. You can use it for anything. 
it goes without saying that you should get all the juices from your roasting pan. It also should go without saying that you should scrape up as much of the gunk, the foam, from the bottom of the pan as you can. And now I'm just going to fill it with water. That's pretty much all the actual work that I'm going to have to do for a while. A couple things. Never salt your stock. Unless you know exactly what you're using it for and you know you're never going to want to reduce it. And even then, it's still not a great idea. And the reason is, if you want to reduce your stock, then the further you reduce it, the less water there is. And so the salt concentration goes up. And so at a certain point, it becomes inedibly salty. At the beginning of making a stock, or at the beginning of a cooking, of cooking meat, the proteins in the meat begin to coagulate. If you've seen like the white stuff, like when you're making pork chops and like there's like some white stuff bubbling out, that is proteins starting to coagulate. That'll happen at the beginning of uh, making a stock, especially if you're starting from raw meat. One of the purposes of roasting is to pre-coagulate those proteins so that they pretty much fall out right away and you don't have to worry about them being churned into the stock. So the reason that you that you skim, you're, you're trying to, as those proteins come up, you remove them from the stock because they don't serve any purpose. They don't, they're not doing anything for you except for making things a little cloudy. The thing is, as long as you don't boil your stock, which as I was saying earlier, if you boil your stock, you can emulsify, you churn fat into it, which can make it muddy and unclear and it also do the same thing with proteins so if you actually boil your stock you can let it get up to a hard boil if you're like not paying attention and you see it but as soon as you notice it turn it down it's about two and a half hours later this stock has been simmering away nicely most of that time just a little few bubbles breaking the surface now how do you tell when it's done when it's ready when you've extracted all the flavor you can get one way is to taste the meat. It'll be totally bland, totally flavorless. And then the other thing to check is if you can find a joint, like especially with a chicken, the easiest place is with a back. You, you can literally pull it out and the vertebrae will just fall apart. So you turn it off. And now I have right about three quarters of a gallon of very lovely, very golden yellow chicken stock. So I was going to move on to uh, roasted onions because we we're going to talk about onions as a side dish next. But Terry, during the, that segment, confessed to us that the only onion rings that she'd ever had until when you were like an adult, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Was, was what? It was like dehydrated minced onion that were rehydrated somehow formed into an onion ring and then had a coating of like a breadcrumb. And mom would put these on a baking sheet, bake them in the oven, and serve them. And that was my memory of onion rings for many, many years. And I, I didn't like them much. <laughs> and my sister and I would I would just drown ketchup well, all over them. And The way that you describe it really doesn't sound very no, appetizing. And, and so it was much... Much later in my life, I was out to dinner one night, and I had this 
this amazing onion ring that was a whole onion. And I never realized an onion ring could taste so <laughs> wonderful. And it's like, where have these been all my life? Yeah, those things, they must have gone out of existence at some point because I never I never saw them. I don't know if it was just a Midwestern thing. And, you know, I feel bad sometimes because, you know, I feel like people sort of make fun of Midwestern food. And, and then you yeah. hear about stuff like that. And you're like, well, I guess I kind of understand why. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and you know, I know I've, I've seen, I used to go to the market in Homer. And if they didn't have just the plain, real, round onion, onion ring, they'd have those. I'm like, no, I'm not buying those. Oh, man. That was my first memory of an onion ring. And I didn't care for them. And now I love them. Well, let's move on because I'm a little traumatized from this whole sorry. dehydrated Midwest onion, freaky, weird tater tot kind of <laughs> onion that just sounds awful. Yeah. What I like to do if I'm roasting meat, you know, the best thing you can do to go along with your meat is obviously to just throw a whole onion unpeeled right there next to your meat. You don't even have to. I mean, sometimes I cut it up if I'm feeling fancy and put it because the <laughs> other the, the second best thing to do is to put the onion under the meat while it's roasting. Mm -hmm. Onions are amazing. They leave on so much flavor and deliciousness to so many, many things. And then if you get the little ones, the Cipollinis or oh, right. pearl onions or those uh -huh. kind of guys, a lot of times I, if I'm using those, I just get the frozen ones because I'm too lazy to peel. Right. They're really easy to peel, though. I mean, really, you just you, you snip off the ends and you put a little X on them and you throw them in some boiling water and you blanch a, them yeah. and you peel Extra them. Extra steps. It's not that bad. But really, the, uh, the frozen ones are just as good. I bet you're the same as me. You like to glaze them? Oh, yeah. You know, you just cook them in a little butter and then pour in a little stock or a little wine and yeah. cover them and let them, oh, let them go for like an hour. Oh, yeah. And a stuffed onion. How do yeah. you prep your onions for stuffing? Do you well, well, you just, I peel off the outer layers that are the tough ones. And then I, I core the middle out a little bit so they have a little a little hidey hole in there you can put your stuffing in oh so you just cut it you just cut into the raw onion yeah have you what ever you tried do? uh usually when i do it i blanch the whole onion oh and then for long enough to get the first few layers kind of soft mm -hmm. because then you can you can cut a little slit along the side and you can put, peel the the yeah, yeah. first three or four layers that way you actually get multiple stuffed onions out of a single onion too so you get the inside is uh is is still pretty raw, and that I'll chop up and use in the filling. Right. And then I'll take the, you know, four or five, the thickest, the biggest outer layers, and you stuff your, whatever your stuffing is, you put in there, and then you just roll it up. And then you, you lay all your onions out in the dish and pour whatever sauce you're using on top of it. That sounds really good. It is really good. And I, and I like it because I used to do them the other way, you know, where you just stuff the whole yeah. onion. And it's good. Don't get me wrong. I mean... Oh, no. You know, except for, except for that dehydrated onion thing, you can't... <laughs> You can't mess up onions, basically, except for that. Maybe kids like them. But, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I really like, I, I like the other way because um, doing it with the, the wrapping, because you get, you get, A, you get smaller portions too, you know, so you can just have a couple if somebody's not like interested in eating a whole onion. Because mm -hmm. like not everyone loves onions like we do. I know. Like a little company side dish kind of thing would be nice. It would also look good on the plate. It would. But we need to finish our soup. Okay, let's finish the soup. So now that the stock is made and the onions are caramelized, the rest of the soup is very easy. I splashed in some red wine with the onions. You can use sherry or Madeira or anything, basically, and let it reduce a bit. And then I added the stock and a little thyme, because I like thyme, and a bay leaf and some salt and pepper. And all that really needs to do is heat through. And then the soup goes into an oven-safe bowl and is covered with a chunk of crusty bread topped with cheese, 
Gruyere or another nutty Swiss is kind of the, the traditional, but you can use any cheese Melty that melts. Yeah, anything that melts well. The whole business goes under the broiler or into a really hot oven. But a soup by itself isn't much of a meal, so I asked Terry to come up with a salad to go with it, and we went up to Station 12 to put it together. Okay, so um, we are going to be making a little complement of a green vegetable dish to go with Jeff's French onion soup. The first thing I'm gonna do is roast some walnuts. So in the oven they go. Um, when you roast them a little bit, it just brings out the flavor of them so much more. What temp are you roasting them at? I've got 375 right now. And usually when you can start to smell them, it's probably about time to pull them. I'm just trimming the um, stem end off the bean right now. If you have nice green beans, which are really hard to find, I like that little pointed end there. That just looks nice and a little more finished. Green beans are kind of hard to find this time of year. Like, I, I'm feeling this one I'm cutting down. It's kind of, you can feel it's hollow in the middle, so he, he's, he's not getting to go in our dish. I've always been a huge fan of green beans because my grandma used to grow those in her garden. When I was a little girl, we would run to grandma's house in the country and run right up to the garden in the summertime and start grabbing things to eat. Every time I taste a, green, a raw green bean, I, I gotta think of grandma. She was a great cook too, but she was a basic cook, you know, she used what she had. Okay, my beans are trimmed sufficiently and now we're going to quickly cook them and blanch them. So we're gonna go and put them in a little hot water cover and cook them five to seven minutes. Then we'll drain and put them into a bowl of ice water to, quick, to stop the cooking. You want a crisp, tender bean. A little water in here. Don't need a whole lot, maybe, what, half an inch or so. Put the lid on, let her come to a, a nice hot boil. So in the meantime, while that is all getting ready, I am gonna go over to my lemon and do a little zesting, cause our green bean um, dish has a little zested lemon and a little lemon juice on it. Okay, so a little lemon zest goes a long way. When you zest a lemon, you wanna be really careful you don't go into the white pith part of it, cause it's bitter. We only need a little bit. Lemon zest is very, very potent. It's also very excellent. I love, love lemon. This time of year, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to brighten up your dishes with. Who doesn't need a little more sunshine and yellow and brightness in their life, <laughs> right? Well, and it's one of those characteristics too that a lot of the lemon flavor like that we associate <laughs> with lemon is actually in the zest. Like lemon right. juice itself just is mostly acidic. There's right. some lemon flavor, but if you want something to taste like lemon, it's all in the zest. Yeah, it's, it's got the essential oils in it of the lemon. Okay, so I've got, I don't know, it's not a whole lot. It's maybe the zest of a half a lemon. I don't have a whole lot of beans going on here. You don't want to overpower your dish with the lemon. I'm just going to put a little, little juice into the bowl with the zest because that is what we're going to finish off the beans with. So I'd say maybe we've got a, I don't know, what do you think, teaspoon in there? Teaspoon and a half? That's plenty. So let's go and see how our water's doing. I bet you it's boiling. I think I can hear it. Perfect. Gonna put our little little grun buns in here. Here we go. And we'll just spread them out a little evenly in the pan. Put our cover back on. And we're just gonna simmer those a little bit 
I don't know, about five minutes or so. When the beans are done, like I said, we're gonna drain them and then we're gonna put them in a bowl of ice water. We're gonna let them cool there. And then after that, we're going to um, lay them on a little bed of paper towels and dry them off really good because we're gonna saute them. And you want um, things to be dry when you cook it in oil. I got a couple leeks. Sometimes they're hard to find. Leeks are kind of a fun thing. They're a member of the onion family. I think when Jeff told me he was gonna make French onion soup, I thought, oh gosh, onion, onion family. So for some reason I felt like I had to continue the onion theme with the leeks. And the leeks simply get cut into very thin strips and sauteed, hopefully to get a little crispy and provide a little crunch on our um, green bean salad. All right, you don't need a whole lot and you wanna use the lower end of the leek, which is the whiter part. Leeks also have a tendency when they grow to like to keep the sand that they grow in. So you, you want to wash them really, really well. All right, better check the walnuts. Don't want them to burn. It's just not a perfect world, but I don't, I don't want to burn these. I'm also thinking my green beans are going to probably be ready. I don't like soggy green beans. Oh yeah, those look great. They've got a little golden brown to them. I think the beans are probably good. So I'm gonna go get my ice water ready. I can still see grandma doing this when she was putting beans up for the winter. Okay, I got some ice here. And let's, let's just try one and see. Oh, that's perfect. Not too dumb, and they're not raw. Into the ice water. All right, we're gonna sit in there and get chilly. That's great, they can hang out there for a minute. And in the meantime, I think we will saute our leeks. So here I have just some plain uh, canola oil. All right, there we go. And I have some relatively high heat. We're gonna let that heat up. Okay, so let's take one piece of our leek and see if it's ready. Eh, I think it's time. You hear it cooking? Okay, we're gonna. Oh, it smells good. Okay, we're getting some nice browning going on here. The heat's pretty high, so it smells so good. Now they're getting kind of brown, so I'm thinking I'm gonna call this. We're gonna let these guys hang out here in their little paper towel. They're crunchy. Let's put some salt on. So basically the cooking part of our dish is over, and now we're just going to make it happen. Okay, a little salt's going on these guys, and maybe a little fresh ground pepper, because I just love to grind pepper. And how do they taste? Oh, yum. I love leeks. I know. Anything. Okay, beans should be ready to drain. Beans are looking good. They're nice and, and green. Actually, I lie. Our cooking portion isn't over because I want to put a little saute on these. Okay, so I have a different little pan I'm going to saute these beans in. It's just a nice little saute pan. I'll put a little oil on. Actually, we're going to use some of that oil that we sauteed the leeks in because it'll have a nice little flavor to it. Okay, so we're going to get our little pan a little warm again. See that little shimmer going on? Ooh, I love that sound. Like a crackling fire. <laughs> oh. All right, so we got our little green beans. Okay, I still have my burner on high and my beans are sauteed nicely. I got a little crisp going on with them. All right. They're looking good. 
All right, ooh, a little blistering on the beans. That looks kind of fun. Okay, so you kind of want to artfully arrange your little beans on the plate so they're kind of horizontally pleasant looking. Now we're going to put, well, actually, let's give them a little salt, a little grind of pepper here. And I have a little roasted walnut oil I've found. It's a lovely little flavor. So I'm just going to put a little bit of our lemon zest and lemon juice on here. I'm just drizzling it out with my fingers because if I dumped the whole thing on, we'd be totally overwhelmed in lemon. Okay, now a little of the oil goes on. And then we're gonna sprinkle our, our leeks. Oh, they did get nice and crunchy. Okay, and then we're gonna sprinkle a little bit of our walnuts. And voila! There's our little side green salad to complement the beautiful French onion soup meal. That salad was awesome, by the way. It was. I loved it. I, I went home and made it again. Even with our inferior Alaskan green beans. Yeah. It I, was delicious. I stood in the market and one at a time felt enough green beans to, to get them for dinner. And well, it was nice because, you know, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the vegetables up here are so bad that if you don't, yeah. if you don't do something interesting with them, you just don't want to eat them. I know. You know, that's well, why well, you got to add the, the vinaigrette and the, you know, the, the walnut lemon vinaigrette, which was delicious, by the way. Thank you. I was highly impressed. Why, thank you. And I was thinking, I was just now thinking, like, what would I, what would I finish that meal with? Because, you know, we had this, this really nice light salad that was, you know, something other than a boring old lettuce salad like we always mm -hmm. think of, you know. And then we had this nice French onion soup that's sort of, it's rich, but it's not like, it's not heavy, you know? And then I'm like, man, it's the winter and I've just had this nice meal. And, and I, I started thinking, you know what would be really good with that? What was that? Pears poached <gasps> oh. in red wine oh. with like a little bit of like maybe some cloves. Oh, I love pears. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. And you can get them now too. Yeah. And pears are, again, it's Alaska. We're not getting the greatest pears ever, but you can get pretty good pears. And if you poach them... That actually helps a lot, you know, with mediocre produce. Almost always, if you cook uh -huh. it a little bit, it's better, you know? Right, right. Oh, that sounds great. Or how about a little sorbet? You know, you could even do a lemon sorbet and follow a lemon, it through. Yes, or a pear sorbet. <laughs> and personally, with a meal like that, I would go with either a Syrah or possibly a Riesling as oh. well. Not a sweet Riesling, though, yes. a, dry, a dry, like an Alsatian mm -hmm. or a, a German cabinet. Perfect. I would be very happy. I would be very happy in too. January to eat a meal like that in case anybody's cooking for me oh, in I the thought future. Maybe you'd let us sample that beautiful soup that you just made. Why do I always have to do the cooking, Terry? Uh, because I made the salad. <laughs> no, I, I know. I, I, I like to cook, but sometimes I like it when people cook for me too. So, do you, know, do you know what I would like to mention before we leave is uh, my favorite sauce for roast pork. And it is composed almost entirely of onions. It's onions and cream. And it's called subis. Like, all you got to do is blanch some onions or some, some, will, some recipes will lightly caramelize them. Or I used to work at a place that did, it was a burnt onion subis. And you get a pan screaming hot, like a cast iron pan. And you cut an onion in half. And you put it on the pan until it burns. Like, it gets burned. It's black. Black. And then you throw the whole thing in the food processor. So you get just a little of like a charred onion flavor mm. and you mix that with cream and it's unbelievable. I have to give that a go. But any subis, whether it's charred or not, it goes really well with pork. It's like the greatest pork sauce that Oof. you could possibly imagine. And it's just onions and cream. Onions and cream. So you don't do the bechamel? Uh, you know, you can do the bechamel and because old French sauces were always bechamel or, you know, a flour-based sauce and more modern ones are usually cream. 
But if you want to put whatever dish you're using under the broiler, like if you were going to make a, a, a vegetable dish with uh, a sauce on top of it and you wanted to run it under the broiler so it got brown, then you use a bechamel because the cream sauce will break. Excellent. I got to go home and make something with these. I think we all have to go home because I think we're just about at you, the you end know, of the when, hour. Okay. All right. I well, know. We could keep going. I'm sad. Very easily. But there will be more of these for you, Terry. I, my name is Jeff Lockwood. I would like to thank my guest, Terry Roble, for joining me this week on Check the Pantry. Terry, thank you so much. Oh, it's, it's great. It's always so much fun. It is. But sadly, we have come to the end. But we'll see you next week. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebin. Additional recording took place at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway, on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, call 907 235 4226 or email info at station12.com. This is the first episode of the winter 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org slash support to help produce programs like this.